From WHQR Public Media, this is the Newsroom. I'm Grace Vitalione. And I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're talking about the decades-long battle between commercial and recreational fishermen. Why are they fighting? What are they fighting about? And why does it matter? We'll start by talking about the difficult science of counting fish. That's crucial because those numbers, and we should be clear that they are only estimates, impact how the state regulates fishing. We'll also talk about how some fish populations have declined in North Carolina, some to concerning lows, and the challenges behind managing fisheries. And that includes managing separate rules for commercial versus recreational fishermen. It's a thorny problem that's proved difficult to solve. In fact, the inability to find a solution probably led to the removal of at least one state official who oversaw fishery management. We'll also address a lawsuit against the state of North Carolina alleging that the state has mismanaged the fish as a public resource, something that people have a right to under the state constitution. The civil action compares the state's management practices unfavorably to other states and takes a hard look at the potential environmental impacts. We'll wrap up by walking through what some fishermen and advocates think should be done to solve these issues. Although, we'll be honest, if there were easy fixes here, we would not be doing an entire episode about it. Okay, so if that sounds like a lot to you, it is. But before we get into any of those issues, Grace, you've been reporting on this for a long time, trying to talk to as many people as possible, but there was one piece that you were struggling to get, and that was actually fishing. Yes, I had never actually been fishing before, and I figured I can't do this story without experiencing it for myself. Uh, So Matt Littleton, a recreational fishing guide up in Swansboro, was kind enough to take me out on his boat and teach me how to fish uh, with a hook and line. That was the gear we used, and I had never even like cast the bait, for example, and so he taught me how to do that. So what you'll do... My thought here is like a frisbee. Not really. <laughs> May, I don't know, maybe. Line it up, lock eyes on what you're going to throw at, and then you're going to pull down on the bottom of the butt of the rod while you push with this hand, and then you'll let it loose. Okay. And then with this bait, all you'll have to do is just like let it reel. You really, There's no real way, wrong way to work a swim bait. You can do whatever with them, and it's always good. Okay, Grace, I have to ask, did you catch anything? No. (laughs) I got a bite from a trout, but the trout escaped, and I did almost cast my line into a tree. However, it was fun, and I might go fishing again. Ben, I wanted to ask, you're from New York. Have you ever been fishing? Okay, so before I lived in New York, I grew up in South Jersey, which, you know, despite the public perception of it, it, it can get pretty country. So my family... Uh, when we were young, used to go to a place called Lake Lenape or Lake Lenape, and we fished. We caught mostly sunnies, the occasional catfish. I did eat one. I did not like it. Oh. <laughs> and after moving down here to North Carolina, I've been fishing, um, and as a cook, we relied heavily on local fishermen, local commercial fishermen. Um, and I remember a couple of times, um, you know, people coming right from various local seafood companies with local grouper, or uh, one time someone brought in an entire tuna. These are big, big fish. It took two of us to move it around and break it down. So we served some as sashimi and some we cooked up. And um, 
One thing I will say about the coastal region is that in general, uh, I, the numbers change, but Americans obviously eat a lot more meat than fish. Doctors are constantly telling us we need to eat more fish. Uh, in 2016, I think NPR had an article that was like, hooray, Americans are eating a little bit more fish. So in coastal areas, those numbers are a little better because seafood is so abundant and it's a little, uh, it's a little more um, affordable because it doesn't have to travel as far. Um, and we really were fans of local seafood because when we ordered, you know, commercial seafood from like big companies, they would catch it here on the coast, freeze it, ship it to Charlotte where the distribution plants were, and then put it on a truck and ship it back to us. And it's just never going to be as good as something that was caught right here. No. So I'm a big seafood fan. And I will say, you know, in some of your reporting, you found out that some of the origins of this had to do with trying to get Americans to eat more seafood, um, both because it was an abundant source of of protein, but also because, um, man, it's good for business. It definitely is. Yeah, this is something that I wish I had been able to get into more with this story, but I wanted to start up front by recognizing how big a part local seafood is of the culture here in Wilmington and in the coastal region of North Carolina. It's definitely it's definitely a part of this region's identity. And, and why are we talking about this? Why are you listening to us talk about fishing? Um, because I want to start this story in a place of recognizing that fishing is emotional. You know, for people who are not fishers themselves, this may sound, it may sound silly to think of like, well, why does, why does fishery management, why does fishing matter that much to people? Why is it so, why are people so invested in it? And it's because a lot of people, you know, it's, it's part of their identity, it's part of their culture, it's part of their tradition. And a lot of them have these, these very, these powerful childhood memories. When I was on the boat with Matt, he's a recreational fishing guide, as I said, but he comes from a commercial fishing family. And so he really remembers some great moments from his childhood spent fishing. I remember going shrimping a lot when we were little, and that used to just be the most fun in the world to me, was Mm -hmm. dragging a net, dumping everything on the coal table, and then, you know, going through there and picking everything out. And a lot of people I talked to for the story could do the same thing, right? Pick out a key memory for them around fishing the first time they went fishing with their dad or the first time they could afford their own boat. But I know fishing is also like a really controversial field of management. It is. And a lot of people I talked to, almost everyone I would say, had really strong opinions about the state of fishery management in North Carolina. So here are some of the voices you might be hearing from. On one side, you got wealth. And on the other side... You got folks that are producing seafood that are competing with my grandchildren. If they want to come back and fish here, I want there to be something here for them to catch. We know there's hundreds of millions of juvenile fish that are killed in these shrimp trawls every year. Pamlico Sound, now it's just a barren wasteland. So commercial and recreational fishermen have been locked in a battle over who should get how much of this public resource for decades. And Fred Scharf, a fisheries biology professor at University of North Carolina, Wilmington, said, Both groups, you know, are guilty of just, you know, putting out a lot of propaganda to to try to sway public opinion toward their side. So this debate's been going on a long time, but there is a more recent development. Yeah, I would say the latest stage of this battle was the Coastal Conservation Association North Carolina filed a lawsuit in 2020 against the state of North Carolina for failing to properly manage the fisheries as a public resource. And 
their claim was essentially saying that the state has allowed commercial interests to rule management, leaving us with declining stocks or fish populations and unjust regulations on recreational fishers. And part of that, they say, is because the state agency involved in fishery management was originally designed as an economic development entity, not one for conserving the resource, right? And their argument is that the agency is run with that same mindset of economic development first today. But I want to get more in on that later. For now, I also want to talk about how on the commercial side, a lot of fishermen believe that they are overregulated and the recreational fishermen are running rampant, essentially. So for the state, whose job is to pass policy to manage this, it sounds like this conflict is going to make their job a nightmare. Yeah, here's Sheriff on that. My opinion on the on the user group conflict, it is the single biggest impediment to successful fishery management in North Carolina. One thing that some people on both sides have in common, though, is a worry that there won't be enough fish for future generations. And so I looked at data from the North Carolina Division of Marine Fisheries and for the state-managed species of estuarine striped bass, southern flounder, and striped mullet. Those are all overfished, and overfishing is occurring. And river herring remains overfished, although overfishing is not occurring, which basically means they used to be very overfished and they have not recovered, even though we've cut back essentially all harvest on them. And then spotted sea trout is not overfished, but overfishing was occurring in 2019. And that fishery management plan is under review. So that one's kind of being dealt with right now. Okay. So I understand that some of these stocks are definitely not doing well, but I'm going to need you to explain some of the different entities that are involved in this. Yeah, definitely. So the Division of Marine Fisheries is also called the DMF. Some people also call it the Division, and that's the state agency responsible for monitoring fish populations and making recommendations to the Marine Fisheries Commission, or the MFC. And the commission makes policy based on those recommendations. There's nine members, three recreational, three commercial, one science, and then two at large, which basically means they're just involved in the fishing industry in some other way. Maybe they sell tackle gear. And those members are appointed by the governor. So Scharf, the professor at UNCW, serves on an advisory committee for the MFC, and he said the commission has tended to support open access to the fishery. As to who has that access... It's probably historically been more commercial because North Carolina has always, you know, has had, you know, sort of larger and more more robust commercial fisheries than than several of the other southern states. Scharf said historically. Is that still true now? It's debated, right, over who has the bigger impact now, commercial recreational fishermen. I will say it's true that recreational fishing has definitely increased while commercial fishing has decreased. And the way I kind of wanted to measure that was I looked at commercial fishing trips from 1994 to 2021, right? Annual amount, annual numbers of fishing trips. And those numbers decreased by 66% in that time period, while recreational trip estimates have increased by 70% in that same time. And so according to the DMF, there are currently an estimated 1.5 million recreational licenses in North Carolina, while there are over 5,500 commercial licenses, of which about less than half are active. So as you can see, there's a debate over this impact because while there are so many more recreational individual fishermen, you can also make the argument that you know, an individual recreational fisherman would probably have less impact than an individual commercial fisherman where it's their livelihood. But no matter who is fishing, really, the MFC generally supported short-term economics over long-term sustainability, according to the former DMF director, Lewis Daniel. 
the recommendations of the division are very rarely, you know, were very rarely ever implemented because it would have been too much of an impact on the extractor. So there's the economic side, but there's also an environmental factor here that's been brought up as maybe contributing to the decline in fish stocks. Yeah, and I want to talk about both of those. I think for now, let's focus on the major sticking point for recreational versus commercial fishermen has been who catches how much, right? Stock assessments from the DMF are reports that basically track fish populations. And so these are made up of data from the fishery and independent of the fishery. And independent of the fishery is when the DMF scientists go out and track the fish themselves, right? And some commercial fishermen distrust that data. I talked to Sharf about this, and he said the commercial fishermen might see scientists fishing in spots where the fishermen know there are no fish, but that's actually the purpose. When the population's really abundant, there will be fish here because they can't all fit in the good habitats. The good habitats are full. And when the population's really dense, those habitats get full and there's spillover. And there's spillover to these other habitats. So the data they get is independent of fishermen, but don't they also get some information from the fishermen themselves? Yeah, and that's the fishery-dependent data, right? Both kinds of data are used to make these reports. And in the fishery-dependent data, the commercial harvest is basically gathered from every time a commercial fisherman sells their seafood to a dealer, they have to report how much they caught. Meanwhile, recreational fishermen get randomized mail surveys and the Marine Recreational Informational Program Survey. And what that is, is fishery officials will just be on public boat ramps and a recreational fisherman who pulls up to that public boat ramp, you know, he might run into a fishery official and they would say, hey, how much did you catch today? So the commercial fishermen, a lot of times the ones I talked to disliked this this method of surveying the recreational fishermen. They said that that seemed imprecise. The data that's produced from the recreational industry is nowhere near precision of what's produced from the commercial. And so that's Dewey Hemmerwhite. He's a commercial fisherman, and he said the DMF reports on tracking recreational fishing show high amounts of error and don't capture enough data. For example, if you're a very serious recreational fisherman, you might have your own private boat ramp, and therefore you wouldn't get interviewed by a fishery official. So I know this was the struggle to get to the bottom of, but did you were you able to look into the accuracy of these reports? Yeah, I want to say that no survey is going to be 100% exact, but I did look at some quote-unquote neutral sources and what they think of the survey. The National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine reviewed this survey, the MRIP survey in 2017, and they said the survey has made major improvements, but should have better communication with anglers or fishermen and consider advancing their data collection technologically. And so I also looked into Hemmelwright's claim, and it's partly true. Over the past 10 years, I wanted to look at estuarine striped bass, southern flounder, and striped mullet, as those are our currently overfished species in North Carolina. And out of the three, striped mullet's annual MRIP survey estimates had high standard errors in 8 out of 10 years, meaning they were imprecise estimates. And I'm using standard errors as a loose term here. There's an actual scientific term that they used, but generally these were imprecise estimates, right? But the other two species didn't have any years of high error levels. So those surveys were pretty precise. And when I asked the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which is a federal agency that deals with fisheries, 
also known as NOAA, they said that the survey is never totally error-free, but they do make sure to use these quality control measures. And I also talked with DMF Fisheries Management Section Chief Steve Poland about this as well, and he said they've actually been looking at maybe using electronic tracking apps for recreational fishermen to make it more precise, but it's not an easy problem. It's hard to develop any system that could potentially handle, you know, a million individuals. Okay, so I get that there are definitely flaws with the recreational survey. Something about the randomness of it definitely strikes me. But how's the accuracy of the commercial data? So there are flaws with the commercial data, too. I will say that it's definitely true that it's a lot stricter and it's definitely more precise because it relies on this this strict system of reporting when you sell your seafood to a dealer. But if we remember, more than half of these licenses are inactive, meaning they don't report landings or harvest every year. And so sources I talked to said, you know, that could mean there's harvest we don't know about. I talked to former DMF director Lewis Daniel, and he said it was actually really important to him during his time as director to weed out inactive licenses. If you were to do the license reform and limit it to the people who actually have to make, who are actually making a living selling seafood, I believe personally that those people are going to be your good players. Those guys are the ones that are dependent on it. They're the ones that are going to want to see things go well. Okay, so how could we fix this? Yeah, so this was a bigger issue that I didn't have as much time to get all the way into. But when I talked to the MFC current chair, Rob Bizzle, he said license reform would require legislation at the level of the General Assembly. I have personally been told by some members of the General Assembly over the last six years that if it uh, has fur, fins, or feathers, they don't want to talk about it. They're not going to take it up because it's just too controversial. So license reform is not looking super optimistic yeah, <laughs> in the not. near future. <laughs> but I will say, I also talked to the DMF about this. They gave me a survey they had done on inactive license holders. Um, and generally, the main reason for having a license but not reporting landings was because people were using commercial gear to fish for personal consumption or donation. Let's say they gave it to their neighbor. And when I talked to Matt Littleton, he said another reason people hold on to licenses is because they can eventually sell them. Essentially, he said it was like a, quote, $3,000 savings bond, which he took issue with because he made the point, you know, I can't sell my driver's license. Why should I be able to sell my commercial license? Because in this way, people could get commercial licenses without going through the screening process by the DMF. Okay, so back to the stock status assessments. There are flaws with the surveys, right? Yes. But... I will say when I talked to the DMF, they really said what matters over time is the trends. It's really no different than, you know, how meteorologists collect um, the atmospheric information and try to guess where the hurricane's going. So for the commercial fishermen taking issue with these reports, what is their main complaint? So we talked about the imprecision, but the result of that, the commercial fishermen say, is that these reports are making the fish populations look worse than reality, that they're declining more than they really are. And a lot of commercial fishermen's arguments have been, you know, I see fish. I see southern flounder everywhere I fish. Everything must be fine or else how could I be seeing so many of these fish? Right. And so their experience making a living as a fisherman, which is, of course, valuable in its own right, 
often butts heads with the science side of things. And I think for me as a reporter doing this story and trying to stick to the facts here as much as I can, I did have to look at both sides here and really weigh them both. Um, But at the end of the day, a lot of sources from different departments, different backgrounds, different experiences said this is the best available science. Now, a lot of people you talk to here in North Carolina have obviously a vested interest one way or another. But you also talk to people outside of the state. Yeah, I asked people outside North Carolina to try to go a little bit further here and get a quote unquote neutral source. Um, And so I talked to Mark Fisher. He's the science director at Texas Parks and Wildlife. No ties to fishing industries here. And he was on the peer review panel for the most recent North Carolina Division of Marine Fisheries stock assessment on spotted sea trout. The methods that North Carolina uses are actually they're solid, but uh, they're pretty standard. He was almost confused as to why I even called him up. You know, if the science is not sound, he said, the peer review would just reject it. And then you can't really p- pass regulation based on a rejected assessment. That would be very hard to do politically, he said. So to me, that was a more, quote unquote, objective view of the way our state does these assessments. Okay, well, we need to take a quick break, so we've got to put a pin in this uh, for just a couple of moments. When we come back, we're going to look at the lawsuit against the state over some of these fishery management practices. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman, joined today by my colleague Grace Vitalione, and we're talking about fishery management in North Carolina. We left off talking about how the state tracks fish populations and why that's controversial. But now let's get into another big aspect of this story, the lawsuit against the state of North Carolina by the Coastal Conservation Association, or the CCA. There's two main points here, the use of gill nets and shrimp trawling in estuaries, which are the inshore coastal waters, sometimes we call them sounds. Right. And so I talked to David Sneed. He's the executive director of the CCA. And he talked about how, you know, gill nets and shrimp chong in estuaries, the CCA sees these as harmful fishing practices, right? A lot of other states with fishing industries don't allow them. Those states like Texas, Louisiana, and Florida have uh, recreational and commercial industries that operate side by side, and, and both are thriving. All right, so we should take a pause here, and for people who don't know, what the heck is a gillnet? Okay, according to Noah, a gillnet is a wall of netting that hangs in the water with a mesh of varying sizes, you know, depending on the size of the fish you want to catch. And so ideally, the target fish are caught and the rest swim through. These are often used for southern flounder, which is currently one of the overfished species in the state. The MFC had to implement what some called, quote, draconian measures, which was a 72% harvest reduction in 2022 because no action was taken for so long to address this overfishing of the southern flounder. And so some environmental advocates and recreational fishers, like Sneed, say other fish get caught in these gillnets too as bycatch and they could be killed. Anything that swims through there that's too small is certainly going to swim through, but any other fish that swims in there is also going to be caught. So you talked to gillnet fishermen. What did they have to say about this? They definitely don't agree. (laughs) Sammy Corbett is a former member of MFC, and he has experience in gillnetting. He said the good fishermen know where to cast the nets to target the species of fish they want to catch, and they have very few 
discards. So that's kind of why this is a tense debate, right? If you talk to most gillnet fishermen, they'll tell you they don't get a lot of bycatch. But at the same time, a lot of environmental advocates are very worried about this. So the fishermen feel like they're being called liars and the advocates feel like they're being ignored. Okay, I can see why that would be contentious. Yes. But there's an even more contentious part to this debate. Sea turtles. Sea turtles. Sea turtles. We love them. So... The big concern here from environmental and recreational fishing advocates have been that turtles can get caught and even killed in gill nets. I talked to Craig Harms about this. He's a veterinarian for the Karen Beasley Sea Turtle Rescue and Rehabilitation Center. And he said, yeah, turtles getting caught and killed by gill nets was a huge issue before the gill net fishery received an incidental take permit from NOAA in 2013. And so this permit allows a certain number of sea turtles to be interacted with each year. Interacted with can mean they bump into the net and swim away, or they bump into a boat and swim away, or they're caught in a gill net and killed. You know, it ranges widely. So for people who are concerned about the sea turtles, what does that mean? What does uh, interacted mean practically? So for the per- according to the permit, the inshore state waters in North Carolina are divided into six areas. And for example, if more than 24 total loggerheads alive or dead, are observed as having an interaction with a gillnet fisherman in four of those areas, the gillnet fishery has to close in that region for the rest of the season. And those numbers are different for Kemp's Ridley turtles, for green turtles. Each turtle has its own allotment in different regions. Okay, so how do we know when there's actually an interaction with a turtle? Good question. That relies on the effectiveness of the observer program. Observers tag along on boats to watch for these interactions with turtles. And then from there, the actual observations, like the hard data that they find, is extrapolated for the rest of the fishery because they can't go on every single boat. But the effectiveness of the observer program is debated. Observers are supposed to be on at least 7 to 10 percent of trips in the large mesh gillnet fishery and 1 to 2 percent of the small mesh gillnet fishery. But Daniel, former director of the DMF, said during his tenure from 2007 to 2016, the program never met those requirements. One of the most difficult things I had to deal with was the, the fishermen not agreeing to go, not, not taking observers with them, not reporting their turtles. And so we knew that was happening and we couldn't fix it. And the CCA's lawsuit is claiming the DMF is still not meeting that requirement. I talked to the DMF about this. They said they can't comment because pending litigation. And it's important to point out that right now the state is renewing its ITP, its take permit, this year. And so there's been public comment, and the majority of those public comments have been against it. Online, yes. Online, yes. And so what's interesting is that when I talked to Harms, he said... The funny thing about this is the ITP is kind of born of environmental advocacy. Jean Beasley is the founder of the Karen Beasley Rescue Sea Turtle Rescue Center, and she settled with the state in 2010 to require them to have an ITP because there were so many turtle deaths occurring. And it's interesting to note because one of the CCA's points of contention here has been the question of why did the DMF apply for an ITP on behalf of the gillnet fishery when In the history of ITPs, it's actually more standard for the actual industry itself to apply for its own permit. Yeah, I think CCA noted that it was only one or maybe two states that had ever done this on behalf of the industry in recent years. Yeah, and they said that looks fishy, no pun intended. No pun intended. (laughs) And also like the state is more invested in economics than caring about their sea turtles. 
But the Duke Environmental Law and Policy Clinic, which helped broker the deal, said the settlement actually required the state to apply for the ITP. And harms that Turtle Vet said the oversight of this ITP helped a lot. And now he sees actually more impacts from the recreational side. We probably see more um, turtles coming into rehab from being struck by boats. I would be pretty happy if there were a whole lot less, a whole lot fewer recreational and, and uh, recreational fishing boats or just recreational, recreational boats out there speeding around and running over turtles. When I also talked to the former director, Daniel, he said if the ITP was gone, there would be no limits on interactions, right? This is providing oversight. And, you know, he also echoed Harm's point that recreational fishermen can also harm turtles. But to be fair, an interaction with a turtle with a gillnet could probably hurt them more than just with a hook and line. Yes, definitely. And I talked to Harms about that, too, to check. If a turtle gets hooked, we can take the hook out and it's going to swim off. If a turtle gets caught for 12 hours, forcibly submerged, it's going to drown, it's going to die. But, you know, David Sneed from the CCA made the point, why are we going to all this trouble to keep using a gear that has all these issues? The question becomes, well, why do you keep protecting a gear that does have bycatch uh, issues, that does have interactions with endangered species? And so it gets into this idea of balancing how much you allow an industry to influence the environment around it. And that's, you know, from a policy standpoint, that can be pretty sticky. When I talked to Daniel, he said banning the net outright, banning all gill nets, would be a failure of fishery management. But he said there definitely still needs to be regulation. If you were to define the commercial universe in your state and limit the amount of gill netting that could be used and control the way that it's used to where it's attended, all right, and it's not just left to soak for days on end, all right, and the bycatch is accounted for, then I think it can be it can be a reasonably healthy fishery. And so I wanted to talk about part of Daniel's point there. Part of regulating a gillnet comes from how long you can leave it in the water, right? If you leave it there for 12 hours, you're more likely to have more bycatch and maybe a turtle could get caught. And you wouldn't know about it until you go back to the net. And by then it could be too late. You know, the turtle could have drowned in that time. So an attended gillnet, which he talked about briefly there, means you aren't leaving it there for a long period of time, right? Some the strictest regulation would be someone has to be constantly watching the gillnet. And so that's another point of contention that you can get into a lot more than I have time for. But, you know, that regulation of how long should it be left and what does attended mean, et cetera. So there are lots of different ways to go fishing, basically, whether you're a recreational fisher or a commercial fisher. So how popular are gillnets? I talked to Scharf and the UNCW professor and Matt Littleton, the recreational fishing guide, and they both said that they've seen gillnets grow a lot less popular. I wanted to fact check that, so I looked at the number of estuarine gillnet permits, and they haven't decreased much in the past seven years, around 2,600 to around 2,400. But when I brought that to Matt, he said people often will get them along with the commercial license because you know, you're already there, you're already going through this process, why not add on this permit instead of having to go back and do it all again? He said his grandpa, his dad, his brother, his mom, all of them have estuarine gillnet permits and none of them have probably used them in about 13 years. So where he is in Swansboro, he's seen it grow a lot less popular. Okay, well that's an interesting perspective on the gillnet part of this lawsuit. And we've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to dig into another major part of the lawsuit, and that is shrimping. 
You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman here with my colleague Grace Vitalione, and we're exploring a major aspect of the lawsuit against North Carolina filed by the Coastal Conservation Association, the use of gillnets. Now, there's another part of this lawsuit, shrimp trawling in estuaries. Now, shrimp are popular, not just for low country cooking, but as a major export, and we know there are a lot of ways to eat them. Today's on shrimp kebabs, shrimp creole, shrimp gumbo, pan fried, deep fried, stir fried. There's pineapple shrimp, lemon shrimp, coconut shrimp, pepper shrimp, shrimp soup, shrimp stew. But the CCA lawsuit takes issue with how the shrimp are caught and what gets caught alongside them. Right. And what's important here is specifically they take issue with shrimp trawling in estuaries or sounds. The CCA lawsuit alleges that on average for every pound of shrimp caught, there's 3.6 pounds of living bycatch also caught. And that's mostly juvenile fin fish. And bycatch, by the way, that term means fish that are caught along with the shrimp in the trawl. So that's like one in five pounds of the catch is sh- is shrimp. That's that's not a great ratio. No. And part, part of this is, I will say, juvenile fish are the ones living in estuaries more often. And so they're more similar to the size of shrimp because they're smaller. So that makes it easier for them to get caught is bycatch. But yeah, that is not a great ratio. You're right. So I looked at this three-year DMF study that observed the species caught in shrimp trawls, and they covered about a little over 1% of all the trawl trips. And so in all fishing seasons of the commercial shrimp otter trawl fishery, which, by the way, I'll get into more about the different types of trawls, but the otter trawl fishery is pretty common here. But in all fishing seasons of that for 2014, the most caught species in a shrimp trawl was not shrimp, but Atlantic croaker. The study observed 2.5 million of them, making up nearly half of all biomass in the harvest. Brown shrimp are second at 17% of the biomass and spot come in next at 13%. I'm just still struck by how little shrimp is actually caught by shrimp trawling. But, okay, for the rest of the bycatch, for these other fish, what happens to them? Yeah, I think, well, that's debated. (laughs) So I talked to Daniel, former DMF director, and he said even if these fish are thrown back to sea, which many of them will be, much of the bycatch can die because predators follow along. You know, I remember when I was a kid, my family would just train our binoculars on shrimp trawlers out there in the ocean and watch the dolphins chase the trawls. Because they're kind of smacking the the surface of the water and then the dolphins can just nom them right up. Exactly. Also, fish can be caught by multiple trawls. And at that point, they just give up. We know that there are specific spots in Pamlico Sound that may be trawled over 15, 20 times a day. What are the chances that an individual juvenile fish can avoid a trawl that frequently over the course of the season. Another important thing to think about here is the Pamlico Sound, which Daniel referenced, is where a lot of this occurs because it's a huge body of inshore coastal water. And there's a lot of nursery habitats in the Pamlico Sound for fish. And so a lot of environmental advocates worry that 
we're not protecting enough of those nursery habitats in the sound. So the CCA said this bycatch is a lot of waste and it hurts fish populations. And also they point out that shrimp trawls can hurt turtles too. And so because of all these issues, the MFC required bycatch reduction devices and turtle excluder devices to be part of the gear for shrimp trawling. And they say that, you know, helped a lot. Meanwhile, I will say advocates disagree with how much it helped. But Poland Fisheries Management Section Chief at the DMF said that's just the best way to address bycatch. As a division, we've been consistent over the years in making recommendations to our Marine Fisheries Commission to adopt um, kind of gear modifications um, to reduce bycatch in our fisheries. Right, and those gear modifications would be the bycatch reduction devices, the turtle excluder devices. You know, Scharf, the UNCW professor, told me the CCA brought a petition to end trawling to his advisory committee based on this this problem of so much bycatch. But his issue and the committee's issue with this was they didn't have the context of that bycatch within the greater population of the fish that were caught in the bycatch, right? Like we talked about Atlantic croaker making up so much of this bycatch. Well, if they're if there are 100 Atlantic croaker hypothetically caught in one shrimp trawl, but there's 100 million of them in Pamlico Sound, it doesn't matter as much than with a smaller ratio. So we need that context, they said, to be able to pass any sort of regulation. And when I talked to the DMF about this, I asked them about the study that I just talked about, you know, showing these different species. And they said that only was intended to provide context of what kinds of species made up the bycatch not to estimate the total bycatch in the shrimp fishery, so they can't make recommendations based on that study. But they said staff are currently figuring out whether it would be possible to conduct a long-term shrimp trawl observer program to find that context. Grace, you brought up nursery habitats before, so I want to get into that a little bit. How do shrimp trawls affect those habitats? Yeah, so a common Like I said, a common gear here are otter trawls. And according to the DMF, otter trawls pull a net along the bottom of the seafloor with two trawl doors on either side holding it open. And so when I talked to the former director of the DMF, Louis Daniel, he said otter trawls have harmed the floor of the Pamlico Sound, which the floor is important for a healthy ecosystem. Where there used to be all these lush live bottom areas with soft corals and tunicates and and oyster reefs and all this stuff out there that just made Pamlico Sound such a fertile estuary and nursery ground for all of these different species of fish. You know, now it's just a barren wasteland. And so when I talked to the DMF about this, they said it's true that any time a gear touches the seafloor, it can have a negative impact. But again, they have to look at this from a policy standpoint of allowing the success of an industry while also balancing the impact that it has on the environment. Okay. When I was reading through the lawsuit that CCA filed, one thing that struck me is they claim North Carolina is the only state to allow these practices. What's going on with that? Yeah. And their reasoning for that is the commercial influence that the state they are alleging is under. But I will say, From my research, it seems to be a little bit more complicated than that. I talked to Mel Bell. He's the former director of fisheries management under the Department of Natural Resources in South Carolina. And he said part of this is because North Carolina just has more opportunities for inshore fishing. Your sounds are are really neat to have. Fisheries go where the resource is. Right. The fisheries go where the resource is. So in his mind, it makes sense why we allow more of these inshore fishing practices and more of these gears that are operated in inshore waters 
because we just have more opportunity for an industry there. Mel Bell also had an interesting point where he said, you know, there was a similar battle over gillnets in South Carolina as well. And in the end, recreational fishermen just became more powerful and commercial fishermen became an endangered species, if you will. And so that battle has essentially ended there. But he said, you know, maybe we're just seeing a later stage of that here in North Carolina. He also made the point that South Carolina doesn't do stock assessments. They don't have the resources or capacity to do that, he said. And so he saw it as a major plus that at least North Carolina is is doing these stock assessments. It's good to know what we're working with, but what about our declining numbers? Yeah, those are still very real. So when I talked to the current chair of the MFC, Rob Bizzle, he said the two things that stick out to him are the environmental factors of water quality and climate change. The, the ocean is getting warmer. And with the increasing sea level, that's pushing more uh, salt water inland. And it's affecting, it's causing some of our fish to migrate more or find a home more inland. So that's really weighing on his mind because, you know, the climate change is not something that MFC can control by themselves. But I also talked to Poland at the DMF about this, and he said, It's not totally out of their hands. The DMF does address environmental quality with coastal habitat protection plans that are part of fishery management plans. So it's not exactly a hopeless situation, uh, but I think the point still remains that, you know, increasing sea temperatures and sea levels will have major impacts and continue to have major impacts on the fisheries here. All right. Since both commercial and recreational fishermen are concerned about there being less fish to fish for, what can they do about that? So I talked to Sharf, the professor at UCW, and he said there's not one easy answer, but... I mean, ultimately, right, the buck stops with the Marine Fisheries Commission. And in his mind, the MFC is too politicized to make these decisions. He said he would like to see an advisory science committee that participates and gives recommendations as well as the DMS recommendations. And that could be seen as a more neutral force than the DMF, which is seen as very biased by both sides. What did Bizzle, who's running things now, say to that claim that the MFC is over-politicized? He disagreed. We will get our stuff accomplished. Uh, and it's, it's kind of like sausage. You really don't want to see how it's made. In the end, it's usually a good product. But he also recognized that the system is too slow. It usually takes about at least two years for a change to be made. And that can feel really frustrating for everyone involved. And so, yeah, fishermen on both sides also say that the MFC is biased towards the other side. And Bizzle said he disagrees with that. Uh, Everybody's got, to a degree, their own agenda. And I think the way they set that up in the past that way is so that everybody would have um, um, an equal say in the management of resources and hopefully come to a consensus. Still, though, Bizzle said it's true that fish are being overfished in North Carolina and that the MFC needs to continue to reduce that. And that's never going to be popular. If I kick everybody off, I've done my job. And Scharf said for real change to occur, the two sides are going to have to learn to work with each other. You know, if we can find a way to bridge the gaps where we can have a bit more cohesiveness and 
and trust. I think it's a lot easier to to respectfully disagree. So we talked to a lot of people for this program. Does anyone have a solution here? So Daniel's idea was to go a bit further than what Sharp was saying and to dissolve the MFC entirely. He said, you know, in the late 90s, when the Fisheries Reform Act made the MFC what it is today, since then, we a lot of stocks have just continued to decline. We can't look at what we've done and say that there's been any real measurable success. And so... To me, it, it, it just kind of lends itself to the, you know, if it's broke, fix it. He took a lot of issue with the fact that most of the commission is personally or financially invested in the outcome of policymaking. He said that just negatively influences the policy. He also made the point that for recreational commercial fishing, those, they require two different types of management. For a recreational fisher, the size of the fish that they're allowed to catch is going to matter a lot more to them than how many. And this is a very general thing, by the way. Of course, this is different for everyone. But for a commercial fisherman, generally, they're going to they're going to care more about how big their bag limit is, how many fish they can catch versus, OK, the size. And so because those two different types of management are so different, that can make it very difficult to come to a consensus on even how to manage them. And we should say that, you know, Daniel was facing a really challenging situation. He had two groups of fishermen who didn't agree with each other and agreed that the regulating body was corrupt, but not in the same way and not in the same direction. We should also mention that Daniel was removed from his position. Right. And Daniel said he was rem- the reason he was told he was removed was because he couldn't solve that conflict between the recreational and commercial fishermen. And I had talked, you know, sources told me that at that time, the tension was even stronger than it is now. Officially, though, Daniel said he knew he could be removed without explanation. And there was no official explanation because he was there by governor appointment. And so when I checked that with the DMF, they said the same thing. There was no reason given for his removal because the director position is exempt from the state HR Act and therefore doesn't require a reason for removal. Daniel also talked about the idea of merging the DMF with the Wildlife Resources Commission. And that's a state agency that manages inshore fisheries. And I'm talking about rivers here, not Pamlico Sound and wildlife. Okay, how would that help the situation we're in now? So he was saying it would give the DMF more resources and help them better enforce regulations. Again, a little note here, the enforcement of DMF regulations was a whole nother issue I could do another podcast on. But he was saying this would also help separate the DMF from commercial influence by making it part of this very much statewide agency. And that's supported actually by the CCA and a lot of environmental advocates. But he said, he, you know, he also recognizes that when he was the director of the DMF, he saw that proposal as a personal insult and an insult to the DMF. You know, they're the agency that knows the best about fishing. Why should they have to, you know, be merged with this with this other commission? And so I think this goes to show that there aren't any easy solutions here. Even the ones I've identified in this section are hotly contested and are not quick fixes. But again, with all of that, we also have to hold that in one hand and in the other hand, hold the truth that the fish are an important public resource and we have to continue to conserve them. Think of the fish. Think of the fish. And Daniel said, you know, look at this current system. It's not working. If we don't do what's in the best interest of the resource, there won't be a resource. 
And I wanted to end on that because I think that that's the thing most people involved in this issue can agree on. We need to protect this resource. Well, that might be all we can agree on for now. (laughs) But all right, Grace Vitalione, thank you so much for your reporting. Thank you so much for listening to me. All right. And we should note that you can find more reporting from Grace at whqr.org. And, of course, there's a lot about this story we need to continue to follow, specifically about CCA's lawsuit against the state of North Carolina, one of the more recent developments, was the courts shot down the state's defense of sovereign immunity. That's a legal principle that blocks people from suing their government under a lot of conditions, but not when a plaintiff's constitutional or state constitutional rights have been violated. And one of the things that CCA argues is that access to fish by the public is part of their right to the public trust. That is part of the North Carolina state constitution. And so while the courts haven't said who's right and who's wrong, they do say that the case can proceed. And so, of course, we'll be following it. But that is all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. Thanks to WHQR's own Grace Vitalione and all of the experts and advocates who shared their time and insights with her. And a special shout out to Matt Littleton for taking Grace out on his boat. Thanks to the WHQR technical team, Ken Campbell, Jonathan Furnell, and Megan McDevitt. If you missed part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org. You can now also find it as a podcast, pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Shockman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. <laughs>